Suppose you knew that tomorrow you would be executed publicly as a spectacle. Suppose you knew that in the next 24 hours you would be seized by a band of armed men, subjected to an unfair trial, and condemned to die in one of the most agonizing, brutal, and degrading forms of execution man has ever contrived. How would you spend your final day? With whom would you choose to share your last hours? And what would be the topic of conversation, I wonder? Well, Jesus faced this exact situation. And he chose to spend his final hours with his closest friends, his apostles. We're indebted to John, who devotes nearly seven chapters of his gospel, almost one-third of his entire book, to these last 24 hours of Jesus' life. By reading John chapters 13 through 19, we get a glimpse into Jesus' final day. What was the topic of conversation? At the core, really, of His carefully chosen final words was a prayer recorded in John 17. And unlike you and I, who probably would have prayed for ourselves in the face of such death, Jesus' prayer was for others. For His apostles. And for all of those who down through the centuries would choose to follow Him. His prayer, indeed, was for you. And for me. And for what did Jesus pray? Look at the heart of His prayer with me. John 17, verses 21 through 23. My prayer is that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. You see, it was a prayer for unity, a prayer that all Christ followers would be one. Friends, that was what was on Jesus' heart and mind during those last hours before His crucifixion. Unity. We're in the midst of a series of lessons entitled Life by the Book. Believing that the Bible is God's instruction manual, His blueprint, His directions for how life is best to be lived, let's take a closer look this morning at what the Bible says about unity. If this topic was so very important to Jesus that He would so passionately pray for it in His final prayer, surely we need to understand more fully what it is that God desires of us. So I want you to notice six things with me about this oneness that we're to share as Christ followers. Beginning with the plea for unity. Follow along in your Bible as I read Ephesians 4 
verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Don't miss the Apostle Paul's plea there in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Couple that with Jesus' prayer in John 17.23 that we be brought to complete unity. And the point is this plea for unity is repeated again and again and again throughout the Scriptures. Notice just a few key passages that underscore this plea. Romans 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another, Paul writes. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Then we'll be a choir. Not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus. Read uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 out loud with me. Would you read it with me? I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Galatians 3, verse 28, We're no longer Jews or Greeks or slaves or free men or even merely men or women, but we are all the same. We are Christians. We are one. In Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 2. Do make my best hope for you come true. Live together in harmony. Live together in love as though you had only one mind and one spirit between you. Now truthfully, we could go on and on and on. Because the Bible echoes this plea for unity over and over and over again. But let's move on to our second main point, and that's the paradox of unity. A careful study of unity reveals an interesting paradox, it seems to me. On the one hand, the New Testament affirms that we are one. And on the other hand... (laughs) It's obvious to even the most casual observer that we are not one. And the key, I think, to understanding this paradox comes when we understand the difference between the positional and the practical. Positionally, you see, we are one. Again, Galatians 3 and verse 28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, in other words, because of our position, because we are together in Christ, we are one. 
Ephesians 2, verse 14. Paul put it this way, For He is Himself our peace, our bond of unity and harmony. He has made us one body and has broken down, destroyed, abolished the dividing wall, the obstacle between us. Folks, this, this is finished. <laughs> when Jesus said, To tell us that it is finished, it is paid in full, it is complete, it's done. This is a done work. This was part of the work that Jesus did on the cross. He broke down all the walls. So that we could be one in Him. It's a done deal. Again, positionally, in Christ, we are one. There are no ethnic or economic or educational or whatever barriers. There are none. We are one in Christ. And yet, practically, we are not. One. I mean, you know that. The day-to-day reality is that dissension, discord, and disunity has been a problem in the church from the very beginning. Notice Paul's appeal to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's family brought a most disturbing report to my attention that you're fighting among yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side or I'm from the Paulus. Or Peter's my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. I ask you, has the Messiah been chopped up in little pieces so we can each have a relic all our own? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? You see, folks, practically speaking, we are definitely not one. All you have to do is look at denominationalism today to recognize the truth of that, right? And our denominations show the divisions that we have among ourselves. And and even within those denominations, there's fighting and quarreling and disagreement. There's ethnic divisions within the body of Christ, aren't there? There's differences in style of worship. Do I even go there? That separate us in the body of Christ. And on and on we could go. So, on the one hand, we are one positionally in Christ. And yet on the other hand, we are not one practically. That's the paradox of unity. Which brings us to the perversion of unity. Because of the many divisions and denominations that exist in the church today, because we have perverted the unity that God intended for us, His family, there are a number of noticeable consequences, I believe. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on these. I'm just going to highlight them quickly. Because I don't think I need to elaborate on them. I think you will understand For instance, Jesus' prayer is unanswered. He so passionately prayed in John 17 that we would be one. And we are guilty of messing up the answer to His prayer. Evangelism is hindered. You ever think about that? 
John 13, verses 34 and 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? Anybody? By our love for one another. (laughs) It's the only passage, by the way, I know of in the New Testament where Jesus gives the world permission to judge the church. And we have failed. The church shakes its head in disgust and mockery at us. Again, John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus. How's the world going to get that message loud and clear if we are not loving one another? No wonder the world's confused. Evangelism is hindered. The church is weakened. Matthew 12.25, Jesus said that every kingdom that's divided against itself will be ruined. And the church is not as triumphant. The church is not what it ought to be, what God wants it to be, because of our disunity. And again, the world mocks the church. It is weakened. Man is exalted. (laughs) Not Jesus. Not God. In all of our disunity and divisions, we find ourselves following this great teacher over here, or this great pastor over here, or this person. And we even wear their names sometimes. We say, yeah, I follow so-and-so. Just like they did in Corinth. And man is exalted, not Jesus. And sin is evidenced. It's interesting that right before the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, in verses 19 through 21, Paul enumerates the acts of the sinful nature. And when we think of the acts of the sinful nature, what do we think of? Things like murder and sexual immorality and so on. In the middle of that list are such words as discord, dissensions, factions. Isn't that interesting? It's sin, folks. Let's just call it what it is. Disunity is sin. The perversion of unity. We could probably go on and on. But let's move on with the pretense of unity. In our efforts to restore unity, sometimes Christians have been guilty of accepting a cheap imitation of the real thing. And under the pretense of unity, different denominational groups have come together. The ecumenical churches... Perhaps you've heard of that ecumenical movement. Or the World Council of Churches. (laughs) And there are many more that I could name, but I think a closer examination of their efforts reveal that they only have union, not unity. And there is a big difference between union and unity. I mean, you can tie two tomcats together by their tails and hang them over a clothesline and you have union. (laughs) But you don't have unity. (laughs) See, the problem is in our human efforts to force or to fake unity, it usually comes from one of two extremes. On the one hand, legalism. What is legalism? It basically says, you believe exactly as I believe, then we'll have unity. (laughs) 
And those who go the legalistic route usually end up, the church usually ends up being that they think they have a corner on doctrine. And in fact, they believe they're the only ones that are really going to heaven. But you can have unity with them as long as you believe exactly as they do. No questions asked. And of course, on the other extreme, is liberalism. Liberalism basically says, let's not believe anything. It doesn't matter how you behave, doesn't matter about your character, doesn't matter about your lifestyle, doesn't matter about your doctrine. Let's just all, you know, join hands and sing kumbaya. Yeah. And it results in embracing everyone, everything, without thought. And legalism or liberalism, either extreme, won't bring about unity. We cannot pretend to have unity when we do not. We must never be satisfied with a cheap imitation of the real thing. Which brings us to the platform for unity. So how can we experience the real thing? The kind of unity that Jesus prayed for and the Bible pleads for. Brings us back to our text this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Here the Apostle Paul gives us a sevenfold platform for unity. Seven ones in verses 4 through 6. Did you notice them? Now, time doesn't allow us to expand on them. I just want you to take note of them with me. Verses 4 through 6 says there's one body, one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One body, the one universal church for whom Jesus died. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in the heart and life of each and every Christ follower. One hope, the promise of Jesus' return and eternal life in heaven. One Lord, the Savior Jesus Christ, to whom all authority has been given. One faith, the gospel that was once for all entrusted to the saints. One baptism, the baptism of the penitent believer in water as an outward demonstration of death, burial, and resurrection. And one God, the Heavenly Father, who is over, through, and in all. Seven Ones. Now, the key here, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The key here is that all of these must be present and working together at the same time to bring about genuine, authentic unity. These seven ones cannot be separated. Do we understand that? I kind of put this uh, cable up here. Because I thought you might understand that, how it's intertwined, the seven strands are intertwined. That's these seven ones. They're not, you know, what God has put together, let not man separate. <laughs> and these seven ones belong together. They 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 exist together. They they must be together, or we don't have you can't pick four of them and say, I like these four, but these three, I don't know. But there are churches that major on one or two of these to the exclusion, it seems, of others. We can't do that, folks. I was told a story about a father who was in his deathbed 
And he uh, called his seven sons together to give them some final instructions. He wanted to pass on to them something they would never forget after he was gone. And as they gathered around his bedside there, he handed the oldest son a bundle of seven sticks that he had tied together very tightly and very carefully. And he looked at his sons and he said to his oldest son, I want you to break that in half for me. And the older son, I mean, he tried, you know, he tried everything he could. He couldn't do it. So the father said, pass it down to the next oldest. And the next oldest tried. He couldn't do it either. And on down the line, all the way to the youngest son. And finally, after the youngest son had tried with everything he had to break that bundle of sticks, he just handed the sticks back to his dad and said, I can't, it can't be done. And the father said, yeah, I can. Watch this. And he untied the bundle. Snapped the first, the second, the third, all the way through all sides. Just like they were not even there. Now, he didn't have to say another thing to his sons. Just like I don't really need to say anything more to you. Because you understand what I'm saying here. The strength is in all seven of these working together, being present and working together. We cannot you know, major on one to the exclusion of the other. We must have all seven as our platform for unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Oh, I wish we had more time to develop that. But that brings us to our final main point this morning. That's the preservation of unity. Let me see if I can bring everything that we've said so far today to a conclusion. And let me leave you with some important principles, I think, for our individual as well as our congregational application. In fact, back to today's text. Read Ephesians 4 and verse 3 with me one more time. Let's read it together. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. How much effort? (laughs) Just want to make sure you're seeing it. Good news says, do your best to preserve the unity which the Spirit gives. So, how exactly do we do that? How do we make every effort? How do we do our best to keep or to preserve the unity that the Spirit gives? gives us. Let me suggest three key steps for our application today. Beginning with allegiance to Jesus alone. This is number one because it is number one. (laughs) Please understand that. Allegiance to Jesus Alone. The writer of Hebrews challenges us in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us run the race that we have to run with patience, our eyes fixed only on Jesus. Did you see that? Our eyes fixed only on Jesus, the source and the goal of our faith. Don't miss that. Our eyes fixed only on Jesus. It's not to be fixed on the church. It's not to be fixed on the denomination. It's not to be fixed on the pastor. It's not to be fixed on some human creed or or bylaws or articles of faith. It is to be focused, our eyes, on Jesus and Jesus alone. We've got to get this one. Boy, we don't get this one. I might as well just stop right here and let's quit. 
playing church. You know what I'm saying? It's what I call the triangle effect. That's what I call it in counseling. And I want you to notice Jesus is at the top up here of the triangle. I'm down here. You're down here at the other two points of the triangle. Notice what happens. The closer that I draw to Jesus, the closer you draw to Jesus, what happens? The closer we draw to each other. Isn't that amazing? That's how it works. That's why our eyes have got to be focused on Jesus and Jesus alone if we do that. If our allegiance is to Him, it'll bring unity. Number two, adherence to the Bible alone. We must have, after all, a standard, a measure for faith and practice. Notice what Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing people what is wrong in their lives, for correcting faults, and for teaching how to live right. Using the Scripture, the person who serves God will be capable of having all that is needed to work in harmony with others to accomplish God's work. See it? The Bible must be our one and only authority. Again, we've titled this, this series Life by the Book. <laughs> and in the Bible, these are God's directions for life. These are His instruction manual. This is the blueprint for our living. We must come back and measure everything by this standard. It's not something man made up, some creed that we follow. It's not... Even articles of faith, as good as they may be, it is the Bible. The Bible. Number three. Alliance as a Christian. alone. Alliance as a Christian. Acts 11.26 tells us it was in Antioch that the disciples were first given the name of Christians. Now this title, Christian, literally means of or belonging to Christ. By definition, it describes a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. One who has committed his or her life to Jesus as Savior and Lord or forgiver and leader. I just want to tell you, I'm proud to wear Christ's name. Just call me a Christian. I don't have to be identified as a particular kind of Christian, just simply a Christian. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13, even as early as the first century, people were already wearing different labels. I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. (laughs) Now I'm going to say something here that may get me in real trouble. And we're recording this. My alliance is as a Christian alone. I don't have to be a Baptist or an Assembly of God or a Methodist or a Lutheran or even, this is where I'm going to get in trouble, a Nazarene. I want to wear Christ's name alone, Christian. 
Now don't get me wrong. I know that Acts 24 and verse 5 says the followers of Christ were called Nazarenes. I know that. And I'm not saying I don't appreciate the articles of faith that distinguish the Nazarene church and our call to holiness. Oh God, let us always call people to holiness. But I am first and foremost and only a Christian. And I do not believe that we'll keep the unity of the Spirit if we insist on wearing man-made names and labels. I'll let you know if I still have a job next week. So how do we keep the unity of the Spirit? How do we preserve the unity which the Spirit gives? Three steps. Well, we've got to remember these folks. Allegiance to Jesus alone. Adherence to the Bible alone. Alliance as a Christian alone. May it be so. Life by the book. This morning, we've taken a closer look at what the Bible says about unity. It's my prayer that we here at Springville Naz will make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. That we will be the answer to Jesus' prayer and be brought to complete unity. That there will be no division or dissension among us, only a oneness of heart and purpose. Years ago, when I was ministering in the Midwest, Missouri at the time, we uh, read a story of a little girl uh, in Iowa who uh, got lost during the winter. Now, if you've ever been in Iowa in the winter, (laughs) it's cold. Newspaper said in this article about this, that this little girl just wandered out the front door um, right after dinner one night, and uh, or supper is what they call it there. Dinner's lunch. I learned that when I lived in the Midwest. <laughs> and nobody really noticed her go. I mean, nobody thought much about it because they didn't think she'd wander off, but she did. And it was not until an hour or two later that suddenly everybody said, where's this little girl? And of course, you can imagine the parents, they were frantic. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they, they ran out the door, they started running everywhere, and one of them thought, we better call the sheriff. And they called the sheriff, and the sheriff came, and the sheriff organized a search party, and people were going all over this big farmland out in Iowa looking for this little girl. A couple hours passed, it was dark. Temperatures were approaching zero. When the sheriff called the search party together... <laughs> Ron, you called the search party together. We have our sheriff here today. And said, look, we've got to do a better job than this. What we need to do is we need to start right where she walked off this porch and we need to join our hands. And they did that. Long line. And they started walking. One step. Two steps. It was about 15 minutes later, one of the workers cried out. And all of them went rushing to him. And there they found the body of this little girl. She was gone. She succumbed to the frigid temperatures. And the father fell to his knees and he cried out, Oh, to God, 
that we had joined hands sooner. And that's my prayer for us. Oh, that we would join our hands together now and not wait till it's too late because there's a lost world out there dying in their sin. And if we are not one, if we do not love one another, this world will never know. Jesus. May we be the answer to Jesus' prayer.